Yeah. Yeah, hey, that's, uh, that's Jordan. I've known Jordan since he's like 15 years old. He's our graphic designer around here, plus a whole bunch of other things he does. He's a husband and a father. I'm proud of him. He's a great rapper, too, it turns out. So uh, give it up for Jordan one more time. So uh, two weeks ago, I told you guys I was about to go on a vacation, not to be confused with a trip. A trip involves your children. A vacation does not. So this was a vacation. It did not involve my children. I was uh, in the panhandle of Florida. The town's known as Destin, Florida. has these uh, beautiful white sand beaches, uh, beautiful crystal, you know, clear ocean, just an awesome, awesome place. And we had a great time, really, really restful and recharged and ready to go. Allie and I, uh, we laughed every night. And if you've ever been to uh, the beaches in the south, you've probably seen the same thing happen. If you've been there before, but at Destin, especially because of how beautiful the beaches are, every night at sundown, uh, the same thing happened. And we began to refer to it as family picture hour. Uh, these, these families would, would go out onto the beach and they would all be color coordinated in some sort of pastels and khakis and, and linen was always involved. And it, was, it, it looked like people were kind of ready for Easter, but at the beach, it was very strange. And um, it would happen every night. And the one thing that was consistent was uh, the look of disdain on every man's face who was involved in the process. And the, the children were really confused because they've spent all day on the beach being allowed to do whatever they want, roll around in the sand, play in the ocean. And now all of a sudden they're not allowed to do that because they're in nice clothes. And so moms are yelling at kids and, and moms are yelling at dads and dads are yelling at everybody. And it's just this, this amazing thing to watch happen when it's not you. And so Allie and I were sitting on the balcony of our condo, just sipping fruity drinks, laughing the whole time. It was, it was awesome. One night we were walking up the beach as family picture hour and suit and there was this family that walked out on the beach and there was this dad who was just sunburned and he's holding a couple babies and he just looks like he's he's just in, in a miserable miserable place and so as we walked by I tried to encourage him and went, hey hang in there bro it'll, it'll be okay and it's interesting when people see you without your children they assume you don't have any and so he presumed to lecture me in that moment and he said oh don't worry one day when you have kids you'll understand what I'm going through but I turned around and was like oh no 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 I have four children, and then I presumed to lecture him about what was happening. I, I said, let me, let me explain something to you. What you're doing right here is known as a trip, and that's awesome. What I'm doing is called a vacation. And, and he looked at me with more envy in his eyes than I've ever seen another human being have. And he said, he said I will give you $1,000 if you'll watch my kids for one hour. <laughs> I was like no, peace, you know, it's not going to happen, you know. So uh, we, we had a great time on vacation, and then at the end of that, we, we drove up for a family wedding in a small town in Alabama called Opelika, Alabama, uh, right next door to Auburn, where Auburn University is, and we participated in this, in this wedding, which was, was, was a lot of fun, but it was my first time of staying for several days in the deep south in several years, and I'm from the south, so I, I understand that world, it's just been a while, right? So there were a few things that were a shock to the system. I actually had to have some people repeat themselves several times times to me because I didn't understand what they were saying to me um, and I felt really bad about that. I, I had to get used to seeing a, a church on every corner. I'd forgotten how you go to a four-way stop and there's literally, you know, First Baptist and First Christian and First Presbyterian and First this and all on the same corner. I forgot about that and there were Christian bookstores all over the place. I had forgotten that those existed and as I was kind of put back in that place, I was reminded of some of the things that I experienced when I, when I lived in the Bible Belt for a long period of time and as I was thinking about uh, what happens in the 
the Bible Belt. And I was thinking about this series. I was, I was thinking about how sometimes in the Bible Belt, what happens is uh, Christianity turns into what I refer to as coffee cup Christianity. And what I mean by that is this. Um, maybe you have some of these in your house or somebody's given you one of these before. But I, I get stuff like this all the time because people assume if you're a pastor, you really want things like this. And so I, <laughs> I, I don't, just so you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, so you get these shiny, happy, you know, coffee cups with a little sunshine right there, and then a very famous Bible verse uh, plastered onto onto the cup, and that's supposed to make everything better, right? Every morning you drink your coffee, which actually makes everything better, and so you, you drink your coffee, and that that little Bible verse right there will solve everything. But the reality is, it's not really that simple. It's just like pulling a Bible verse out of its context and just throwing it at people. That doesn't solve everything. And what we're going to be doing in this series called Loser is we're going to be exploring perhaps the most often coffee cup quoted book of the Bible, which is this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a town, a group of Christians in a town called Philippi, and it's known as the letter to the Philippians in the, in the New Testament. So we're going we're to be exploring that, and if you've been to church maybe once or twice, you've probably heard some of these verses, and even if you've never been to church in your life, you might have even heard some of these verses because they are that famous. They often just get pulled right out of context and put on t-shirts and tattoos and coffee cups all over the place, and so here Here's some of them. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We're going to explore that verse actually a whole lot today. Here's another one we'll look at today. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Very famous verse. Uh, here's another one. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2.3. Here's a very famous one. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's a very simple one. Just say this to somebody in the midst of a really, really bad day and see what happens. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice, right? Very good verse, but you got to use it the right way, all right? And here's perhaps the most famous one, tattooed on famous fighters, heard quoted by Super Bowl champions almost every year, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13, and that's what's on my nice, shiny, happy mug over here. Now, all of those verses are awesome. All those verses are profound. All of those verses are, are really good and really helpful within their context. And one of the things that most people who quote Philippians fail to know or, especially, or maybe even just remember is that all of those victorious Christian verses were written from prison. Paul wrote them while he was in a jail cell. He did not write those verses as an unscathed, healthy, wealthy follower of Jesus. He wrote it with bruises and wounds and scars and sickness on his way to being beheaded in Rome. He did not write those verses while standing in the center of the ring with his arm held high. He wrote those verses while lying flat on his back in the middle of the ring after the ref counted 10. From all intents and purposes, from the world's perspective, Paul is the biggest loser of them all. He was an up-and-comer. He had everything going for him. He, he, he was being trained by a famous teacher in Judaism. He was known as being incredibly smart, intelligent, maybe even a genius. He had everything going for him, and Paul blew it. He ruined it. He lost his moment. It was all over. It's like he was the big name up and coming heavyweight contender. He got his title shot and got knocked out in the first round, game over, game set, match. That would be the world's perspective on Paul. And yet Paul somehow managed to pen those victorious Christian verses. How can that be? 
Well, that's what we're gonna explore in this series. What we're gonna look at in this series is how being a loser is really the essence of being a follower of Jesus. And in order to do that, we have to continue on this kind of dual track that we've been on where if you've been tracking with us for a little while, we've been exploring the book of Acts, which is a historical account of how the church, how Christianity spread uh, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And and we do that as we launch into some of these areas where the gospel, where the church spread. Uh, We also get these letters that Paul usually many years later writes back to those places where he first planted churches and that's what we have in Philippians and so if you got your Bibles we're going to be in two places today Acts chapter 16 and then we'll be in Philippians chapter 1 and so we've studied Paul's first missionary journey where he went through Galatia and then we studied Galatians and now he's going on his second missionary journey and he he heads off with a crew of, of guys with him he goes with guys named Silas and Timothy and Luke and probably others that we don't know Luke is the author of Acts and so what we'll see in Acts periodically is we'll see all of a sudden the pronouns change to we. We went here, we did this, we did that because Luke is going, I was there, I was with them on these journeys. And so this journey, the second missionary journey takes them to this area known as Macedonia, pretty big area, region. And in that region was this town known as Philippi. And it was around AD 50 that Paul went there with his, with his crew. And uh, Philippi was known as one of the major Roman thoroughfares. It was a major metropolitan city. It had a lot of diversity, a lot of art, a lot of uh, trade, a lot of commerce, a lot of business. There was very little, if any, Christianity. There was very little, if any, Judaism. Most people worshiped the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. In other words, they were polytheists, all right? And so Paul goes there, we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 16, verse 11. Look at this. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace in the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, Normally what Paul would do upon entering a city is he would go to the Jewish synagogue. That would be the first stop, all right? That would be the place he would go first. He would go into that synagogue. He would say, can I talk today? And they would go, okay. And we go, let me tell you something. Everything you've been learning, everything you've studied your entire life, all the Old Testament stuff was pointing to this guy named Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave. Put your faith, put your trust in him. And that usually created a whole lot of conflict. But on this day, he didn't go to a Jewish synagogue because there wasn't one. Weren't enough Jewish people in Philippi to even constitute a synagogue. So they get wind that there might be this, basically a glorified prayer meeting going on down by the river. And so they go down by the river where they're met by some people who have at least denied uh, polytheism and are, have adopted some form of Judaism where they're worshiping one God. And so that's, what, that's what's going down. Look at what happens now, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the town or the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we're gonna meet three people in Philippi today. The first person is this woman named Lydia. And we know that she has a place in Thyatira, which is over in Asia. And she has a house in Philippi, all right? So basically what you have here is you have a fashion industry mogul. It's basically the equivalent of having a house in New York and having a house in Milan. She's a successful businesswoman. She's very dependent on herself. She knows what she's doing. She's made a lot of money. And the Lord opens her heart to embrace uh, faith in Jesus and 
good day for Paul and Silas and, and the rest of them. She goes, hey, why don't you guys come crash at my house with my family? It's probably a really nice crib. So they're like, yes, that sounds good. Most of the time when we come to town, we have to like camp out outside the city or we get like, you know, tortured or thrown in prison and things like that. So we'll take it. And they probably got to hang out at a really, really cool place. I mean, in the Middle East, uh, you would often sit on the roof in the evening to enjoy the cool breeze coming off the ocean. So imagine them sitting on the roof of Lydia's house, enjoying good food, good drink, good friends and good company. That's what's going down. And if the story stopped there, you would be right. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is awesome, right? But things get weird really, really quickly. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit, had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So here you have something very interesting going on. To contrast this successful independent businesswoman, you have this slave girl who's possessed by a demon and owned by these men who are making money off of her because she's a fortune teller. You can't get much more different than Lydia and this slave girl. And they actually interact with this slave girl on a daily basis. Look at verse 17. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become, I love this, Paul having become greatly annoyed, St. Paul got greatly annoyed, awesome, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out of her that, hour, that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are dis disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So things change quickly. Things change on a dime. Paul and Silas go from living in luxury to being arrested, beaten by an angry mob with rods, stripped naked in front of everybody and beaten down with rods. Now let that sink in. I mean, life can change in an instant, can it not? Some of us know that all too well from experience, but do you ever sit and consider how we are all just one phone call, one moment, one breath, one instant away from life changing forever? Life can do that. It can change in a heartbeat. Things can look so good and so promising and you can be winning and then the next thing you know, you wake up flat on your back wondering what in the world just happened to you. When I, was on the, when I was on the beach, I started talking to this guy one day from Tennessee and typically I try not to talk to people from Tennessee because Kentucky's by the way, we're going to be filthy good in basketball this year, so just get ready. You're going to hear a lot about it, okay? So, so I'm, I'm talking to this guy from Tennessee and tell him I'm from Kentucky. We start just shooting the breeze. He looks like he's in his 50s, maybe early 60s, and I noticed that he was kind of uh, shaking a lot as he was walking, and uh, he, he, he didn't talk very clearly, and uh, he eventually asked me, so what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor, and then he goes, oh, do I have a story to tell you? It's always like, I never know what's coming when somebody says something like that. So I kind of braced myself and he told me this uh, amazing story of how he went in for a routine eye appointment several years before this and he went in for this eye appointment, discovered he had a, a massive brain tumor and his memory stops on that day when he went in for his eye appointment and doesn't begin again until a year later after that. He's lost the memory of an entire year of his life because of all the brain surgeries he had to go through to get this tumor out and all that. And so they get this thing out, but he has to relearn how to walk, relearn how to talk, relearn how to dress himself, has to relearn everything. This guy was a football player in college and just, just, just a tough dude, rode horses, all that kind of thing. Couldn't do any of that stuff anymore and had to relearn 
everything. Then it came back. And the doctor told him, you have three to five years at the most to live. You need to get your affairs in order. And he told me, he said, that five-year checkup happened a few months before he and I were standing on that beach. And he said, the doctor walked in on that day and said, I don't know how to explain this, but your, your cancer is gone. And as I'm standing there and I'm hearing this story from him and I'm thinking about what I'm going to be teaching on in this, in this series, I started to think about Paul and Silas and how quickly changed how quickly things changed for them and how they had to be sitting in that prison cell that night after being beaten by rods and put in, put in prison and put in the stocks and the stocks that they were put into uh, were designed to contort your body in such a way that it would make your muscles cramp and spasm. I mean, I, I can't even sit in an airplane seat for more than 15 minutes without getting angry. I can't imagine what they were going through and they're sitting there and they had to be thinking, man, last night, Last night we were sitting on the roof of Lydia's house, living this lavish life. Things were good. We were victorious. Things were awesome. And now tonight we're sitting in a prison, suffering and bleeding and in incredible pain. Life can change really, really fast. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, you think, <laughs> and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. There's not a lot of sleep to be had when you're in circumstances like that, but instead of yelling and screaming and demanding and complaining like I would have been, these guys are praying and they're singing. And what dynamic is happening? The other prisoners, what are they doing? They're listening. See, here's the thing. When, when Christians will get past this compulsion we have to pretend that everything's okay when everything's not okay and admit that we're suffering when we are suffering, what that does is that allows for people to have a me too moment with us. And so if you walk into a church for the first time and everybody's shiny and happy and it looks like everything's all good, you have to conclude one of two things. Either everybody's faking it or everybody's okay and you're not okay and maybe I don't belong. Either way, you can't identify with that. But when Christians will just admit it, when we suffer, when things are not okay if we'll just call it what it is then that provides the opportunity for people to identify with us that's what Paul and Silas are doing they are fellow sufferers in this moment suffering alongside of the other prisoners and yet in the midst of that they are praying and singing to God and I promise they are not singing if you're happy and you know it clap your hands come on everybody in prison join me you know that's not that's not what's happening you can't sing songs like that through broken teeth probably singing songs of desperation to God, going, God, deliver us, God, save us, God, be with us. There's no pretending everything's okay when you're bleeding and you're in prison and you're in stocks because it's not okay. It's obvious to everybody. Look at verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So we meet the third person in the story now, this jailer who's probably a retired Roman soldier who's been put in charge of this prison, which is probably attached to his house. So it's like the basement of his house. And he probably identifies with being a good worker who does a good job and he shows up every day and he's dependable and he does what he's supposed to do. And in this moment when he assumes that all all these prisoners must have escaped he sees the only way of escape for him is suicide because he goes man I cannot handle having screwed up messed up or let anybody down I've been Mr. Dependable my whole life so I might as well just end it right now so here's who we have we have we have Lydia this independent successful rich and powerful businesswoman we have this slave girl who's oppressed and enslaved and abused and we have this jailer who is dependable and reliable and has no room in his life for failure three very different people now watch what happens with with the jailer verse 28 
But Paul cried out with a loud voice and he said, do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe in, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them and rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. So track with me here for a second, Okay. Had Paul and Silas not been walking to the river, they wouldn't have met Lydia, who became a Christian and invited them to stay at her house with her family. Had they not met Lydia by the river, they wouldn't have been uh, accosted by that demon-possessed slave girl and been able to set her free. And had they not set her free, they wouldn't have been beaten and thrown into prison where they would not have met this jailer who he and his entire family were saved. Normally, going from living in luxury to living in prison, being beaten up, is a really bad day. Most of us from the outside looking in would go, you lost today that was a really losing situation today but in losing in all those situations how much was won how could you even quantify how much was won I mean the first three members of the church in Philippi could not have been from more different diverse backgrounds and become Christians in more different diverse and strange circumstances yet the bottom line is a lot was won through what was lost now look at how their time wraps up in, in Philippi, verse, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to you to let you go. Therefore, come out, go in peace. But Paul said to them, I love this about Paul. He's just a bad dude, man. Check. They, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison. And do they now want to throw us out secretly? How about no, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They've actually broken the law by condemning Roman citizens without a trial. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, if that's where the story ended, you'd be tempted to go, see, it's all, you can do everything through Christ. He strengthened you, he set you free from jail. The people who condemned you, they come apologize. Everything's good, everything's awesome. That's the way it works in, in life with Jesus. Problem is, when Paul writes this letter back to the church at Philippi, 15 years later, he writes it from prison. He's back in prison. Did Paul get delivered miraculously from prison in Philippi? Yes, but he ends up back in prison 15 years later. So here's my question. When my friend that I met on the beach that day gets sick again, and he will, it may not be cancer that comes back and gets him. Something will. Well, how do you know that, Scott? Because last time I checked, death rate, about 100%. Something will. Something will come back. That is a temporary victory everybody that Jesus ever healed that was a temporary victory over that thing because eventually they had to face this enemy called death just like all of us will so how does a guy like the guy I met on the beach that day adopt the kind of attitude that he had so much so that he said I want to write a book called it's not about me how does he get that kind of attitude uh, maybe because of how much has been won through what he's lost. And it's in that kind of a context that Paul writes this letter back to this place that he has such vivid memories from. It's interesting, when you study Philippians, it's the only book in the New Testament that Paul writes where he's not trying to correct bad behavior or bad teaching. He has really nothing but love to share with the people in Philippi. And he's remembering all these stories and it drums up all these events in his mind as he writes this back to them 15 years later as he's once again sitting in a prison cell. So here we go, Philippians chapter one, verse one. 
1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, here's the famous verse, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In the middle of those 11 verses that are just filled with love, he has that famous statement where he says, he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Here's my question. Why did he feel like he needed to remind them of that? Why did he feel like he had to say to people like Lydia, he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. Could it be that maybe Lydia's life wasn't just always every day an improvement upon the day before and that her victorious Christian life wasn't just one day after the other becoming more and more like Jesus, but that her life actually kind of looked a lot like our lives of ups and downs and peaks and valleys and everything in between. Could it be that over the course of 15 years, maybe at different points in her life, Lydia was tempted to get her identity from her business savvy or to rest her trust in her wealth and her possessions or maybe the bottom dropped out of the fashion industry and she didn't know who she was anymore or maybe she just struggled day after day to see the fruit of the spirit in her life and maybe she looked in the mirror some days and went Jesus I don't know you still working in me you still transforming me because I can't really see it right now maybe Lydia needed to be reminded by Paul he who began a good work in you that day on the river will be faithful and he'll complete it in you See, we love that phrase, and they lived happily ever after, probably because it's not real. It's not how life works. We have this tendency to project that on people when we read about them in the Bible, though, and just assume that it was all roses after they became followers of Jesus. But experience teaches us that cannot be the case. Lydia was a work in progress, and she needed to be reminded of that. What about the slave girl? 15 years down the road, maybe she's pushing around 30 years old now. You think she woke up the next day after being set free and had no residual struggles or baggage from being a fortune-telling demon-possessed slave? That might stick with you for a little while. You might need to see a counselor for, I don't know, the rest of your life. If that was your story, right? You think she had no further struggle with fear or shame or lack of trust in others? She needed to be reminded that he who began a good work in her that day that she annoyed Paul so much would be faithful. He'd be faithful to complete it. What about the jailer? You think he just every day of his life from that point on was just a more godly man every day? You think that he never struggled with finding his identity and his job and his performance? You think he never began to fall back on what he relied on before, of bossing people around and proving that he was bigger, tougher, and stronger than all the rest? You think he was just better every day? No, he was, no way. He needed to be reminded that he who began a good work in him that day, that midnight in that jail cell, would be faithful. He'd be faithful to complete it in him. So what about you? Did you need to be reminded? 
Does that change the context of that coffee cup verse for you? That in your darkest hour, in the moment where if there were a Christian living scoreboard, you would be getting rocked like 40 to nothing, that you would just go, man, I am losing. I'm not even sure I'm a Christian anymore. Would it be helpful to have the rock solid foundation of that verse in your mind and in your heart that he who began a good work in you, whether it was 100 years ago or 10 minutes ago, will be faithful to complete it that he who did for you what you cannot do for yourself will continue to do for you what you cannot do for yourself that on the days where you just know you are losing and maybe even especially on those days that Christ is still winning in and through you would that change that verse for you Paul keeps going he presses further into this look at verse 12 I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul wants to press into this paradox. He goes, I know that from all intents and purposes, from the outside looking in, everybody would assume that, okay, if the primary teacher, preacher, preacher missionary, and church planter of the Christian church who's responsible for the spread of the gospel all over the world is in prison, that'll probably slow things down in regards to Christianity's spread. And what Paul wants to point out is, no, 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 it's actually accelerating. It's speeding up. Some very, very unlikely people are actually getting to hear the message of Jesus. The Roman Imperial Guard, people who've been sworn uh, to worship Caesar as the Son of God, are getting to hear that Jesus is the Son of God. How else could that happen? How else could that happen if Paul was not in prison right there next to him every day? See, winning is being accomplished through losing. And on top of that, uh, other Christian teachers are seeing that Paul's example and that's emboldening them to preach and regardless of the consequences. So the gospel is taking ground and gaining steam and gaining momentum as a direct result of Paul's losing circumstances just like it did 15 years ago back in Philippi. Paul's just reminding all those Christians in Philippi that in God's economy, there's a lot of gains to be had through loss. More famous verses to come. Look at verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's going to rejoice because he knows how the story ends. He's going, I know how this turns out, folks. I know where this goes. I know, I know the end of the road. The end of the road is my deliverance. And he sees his deliverance as one of two things. It could be either one. They're both deliverance. He could live and that would be considered deliverance or he could die and that would be considered deliverance. Either way, that's how he had this attitude of to live as Christ, to die as gain. If you keep him alive, whether that's in prison or out of prison, his whole life's gonna be centered around telling people about Jesus and that's a win. If you kill him, he gets to be with Jesus and gain eternal life with his savior. That's a win. So in other words, Paul's going, I can't lose. I can't lose, I can only win. And even with the greatest enemy that we face, which is death, he says, man, that would just be great. And it's understandable why he would think that way because of after living many, many years of constant beatings and imprisonments and being stoned and whipped and ridiculed and suffering, dying and going to heaven, that sounds like a really big win to him. But he's not resigned to that either. He says, if God chooses to keep me around, then I'm gonna bring it every day of my life. My life's gonna be all about Jesus. So whatever comes against him, he's going, I cannot lose. Now, why does he wanna make that dynamic so crystal clear to the Christians in Philippi? Maybe because they have some opposition coming against them as well. Maybe their lives are like our lives and they find themselves in conflict and opposition. And Paul wants to remind them that no matter how much they lose, they really can't 
lose. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict, hang on to that word, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul's saying to these Christians, the opposition that you face on a daily basis is proof of your salvation. You've got nothing left to lose, so you are free to fight hard with reckless abandon. Paul uses that word conflict. It's actually the Greek word used to describe a boxing match in the ancient Olympic games. He's going, man, you've seen me step into the ring. You've seen me get punched in the face. You've seen me throw punches and now you're in the ring too. So fight and fight hard along with me. See, it's really hard to defeat an opponent who's really cool with being dead in the ring. Going, I'll lay it all on the line. How, how can you win against someone who has absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain? In Thailand right now, in their prison system, uh, they're training fighters in their prison system and incentivizing them by saying, if you win your fight, you get out of prison early. And there are people flying from all around the world to go to Thailand to fight these prisoners. I don't know why in your right mind you would want to take that fight. They got all the incentive. They got everything to gain and nothing to lose. What Paul is pointing out, there's nothing that an opponent can take away from you that you haven't already lost. That was Paul's secret to being able to be content in all circumstances. Whether he was sitting on the roof of Lydia's house or sitting in a dungeon, he could be content. And that's what we'll look at in chapter four later in this series. What can you take away from someone who's already lost everything? I came across this quote as I was studying for this series from Edmund Clowney. It says this, every true church is composed of losers, those who've lost everything for Christ's sake, but have found everything in him. So what exactly is it that a Christian has lost? Well, everything that holds power in his or her life that isn't Jesus. A follower of Jesus has lost the desperate need to prove themselves to God or earn his love and affection. A follower of Jesus has lost the endless desire to find joy in anyone or anything other than God. A follower of Jesus has lost the need for approval that leads to the reckless sacrifice of yourself on the altar of other people's demands and wishes. A follower of Jesus has lost the endless search for their identity and they found their identity in Christ. We've lost a million things in Christ and we've gained a million more in him. Here's the question. Where in the world would Paul get such a radical idea? I mean, where in the world would he get the idea that this could actually be true, this concept that there is a great victory that can be achieved through great loss, that in a moment when it seems like all is lost and all hope is gone, when it seems like the very fabric of this life is coming apart at the seams, that in the midst of terrible, awful, tragic, sinful circumstances, at the same time, great good could be brought from that. Where would he ever get a ridiculous idea like that and much less have the hope and the confidence to be able to say something like to live as Christ to die as game where would he get that from where did he see that demonstrated Jesus Jesus and that's what chapter 2 of Philippians is all about Paul always wants to center everything on Christ I was at this wedding I was telling you about in, in Alabama, my wife's first cousin, Kayla, and she really wanted, her and her husband wanted uh, their wedding to be all about Jesus, not about them. And it was really interesting to me because they read a scripture at their wedding that I've never heard read at a wedding before. I mean, I've heard it read in a lot of different circumstances, usually Christmas and Easter when it's read. Never have I heard it read at, at a wedding. And so I, I thought it was just beautifully appropriate because it, it points out this dynamic that there is so much to be gained through 
through loss and how that was demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. And the crazy thing about this passage is it was written about Jesus hundreds of years before he was ever born, much less before he hung on a cross. Listen to this, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned every one of us to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors where in the world would Paul ever get an idea that something so good could come from something so bad because of what Jesus did on a day in history when he hung on a cross and what Jesus did on a day in history when he conquered death not only for himself but for us as the psalm as Isaiah said by his wounds we are healed through the worst moment of tragic suffering and shame the most ultimate thing in the universe was secured God's glory and our salvation his grace was put on full display in the midst of the most ugly events in human history and it's because of what he did for us that we can join Paul in saying what he said confidently to the worst opponent that we will ever face which is death and join him as he taunts death when he says this death is swallowed up in victory oh death where Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I know what this is bringing up for a lot of people. I've been being told in the lobby all weekend long. I I, I get a window into what's being lost in this church. And right now, there's so many things that are being lost. I I talked to a guy last night whose whose son he lost two months ago. And last week, he was diagnosed with cancer. I talked to a lady last night who woke up on Friday and her husband was in bed dead next to her. I'm aware of the things that are going on in our church. I know of marriages that are being lost right now. I know a lot of us are losing loved ones 
ones right now. I know a lot of us have lost what we hoped and dreamed and expected our future to be. Some of us have lost the businesses that our very identity is tied to. Some of us have lost the people we thought that we could count on. Some of us are losing battles with addiction right now. Some of us, when it comes to parenting, our children, the people we love the most, we feel like we're losing on a daily basis. And the list goes on and on and on. There is good news though. God is faithful. And he who began a good work in you, minutes ago, moments ago, years ago, generations ago, whatever that was, he will be faithful to complete it in you. And we'll see it come to perfection on the day of Christ Jesus when we get to see him face to face. One thing I know that he seems to be an expert in is redemption, bringing good from the bad. Not one circumstance, not one moment, not one thing we've experienced in this life. He promises it will not be wasted. Now here's the thing. I want to take the next few moments to use this as kind of a, a prayer time because there's a million things going on in different hearts and different minds in here right now. We're going to sing this awesome song, but for the first few moments of this song, just stay seated and pray. And maybe your prayer needs to go something like this. God, I, I don't think you're there. I don't like what you're doing and I'm not happy with you. Because when you're in the midst of the darkness, sometimes you just absolutely cannot see the light. And that's a valid prayer. Pray it. Or maybe some of us, you're on the other side. You're on the other side of something really, really difficult, really, really dark, really, really painful. But now in looking back, you can see how God was with you through it all, held you together through it all, and he's been faithful through it all. And you would have never seen it in the midst of it, but now you can see it looking back. And it's just time to go, thank you, God, for being faithful. So in between those two extreme prayers, there's probably a million more somewhere in that spectrum. And that maybe needs to be your prayer too. So I'll get us started and then let's continue to pray and then we'll sing about his faithfulness if we can muster the strength. God, we come before you and I know there are hearts in this room that are not breaking, they're broken. They're not people in here that are being crushed, they are crushed and God, you promise that you are near to those who are crushed in spirit and you're close to those who are broken hearted and God, I pray that you'll just make that very, very, very clear in this moment right now. Your word says that deep calls to deep, that the depth of who you are resonates in the depth of who we are. And I, I pray that you'll just do that in the miraculous way that only you can do right now in the hearts of your people that you love. God, for those of us who right now, we can look back at maybe several instances of our life where we thought we, there was no way that you were there, there was no way you were holding us together, that you had abandoned us and you left us. Turns out you were with us through the whole thing. And God, all we can do right now is say thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for being a great God. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.